$90,460. I'm going to write that down. $90,460. According to a 2021 CNBC report, that's the average debt of an American today. $90,460. Some are saying, hey, I'm above average in something. Well, <laughs> that's not where you want to be above average, right? And this is why we sing the song, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go, right? Uh, there's bills to pay, no time to play, I owe, I owe. So that's, uh, uh, that's where we, we find ourselves today. And that's uh, a combination of things between mortgages and uh, car loans and credit card debt and student loans, of course. Uh, you know, it all, all adds up, you know, quite a bit. And, uh, and we know that if you have some of those debts in, in line, that when it comes to payday and you start, you know, paying those bills, you often look at all those debts that you have and say, man, just think how good I'd be, better off I'd be if I didn't have all those things hanging out there, right? Uh, it really binds us when we're in that situation. And, but, but imagine that in the midst of all this, someone came along and graciously decided to pay off all your debt. They paid off your mortgage, they paid off your car loan, they paid all your credit cards and your student loan and every other personal loan debt down. That would be so freeing for you, wouldn't it? It would feel so good to have that happen, and that would be a great sense of relief. But about the worst thing you could do after that would be what? To go out and remortgage the house, <laughs> trade in the car for something new, run up the credit card debts again, and uh, put ourselves back under that burden. And uh, that freedom would be gone, and I'm sure the person who paid off the debt might not be too happy about it, uh, having gone through all that. And this is, in effect, what we see unfolding for us in the book of Galatians. And so we are continuing our study in the book of Galatians uh, today. Uh, my name is Jim Korth. I'm one of the uh, um, um, congregational elders here and part of the teaching team uh, here at uh, um, Provision Church. So glad to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you today. But as we have been going through Galatians, uh, this is really, in effect, what's happened. Not regard, with regard to financial debt, but with regard to spiritual debt that we possess. Uh, we have uh, a look at the Galatians who had, had heard the gospel, appeared to respond to the gospel, that freed their souls, but, but now they were thinking about going back, going back into debt, going back into bondage, going back under the law. And we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, so if you take your Bibles and turn over to Galatians chapter 5, because when you get to Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15 really become the, the crescendo of Paul's argument. Uh, the first couple of chapters is pretty biographical about Paul and his apostleship, beginning of chapter 3 on through the middle of chapter 5. It's all about the, the doctrine of justification uh, by faith in the face of, of the Judaizers who are trying to get people to go back to observe the law. And then uh, the middle of chapter 5 on through chapter 6 becomes the, the ethical, practical part of what it means to walk in the Spirit at that point in time. But today we're going to focus on the first six verses of that, of that area, uh, in Galatians 5, 1 through 6. And the question we always have to ask ourselves through Galatians is this. Do I really believe in the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ? Do I believe that when he went to the cross, he indeed paid it all? And that through repentance and faith in him, it's all taken care of. Or is there a part of me that thinks, well, that's all well and good, but I feel like I should be doing something else too. I feel like there must be some kind of part I have to play in it to get my salvation, or at the very least to keep my salvation. That's the issue that was be, they were dealing with in, in Galatia, other churches at that time, and have continued to deal with even to the present day. 
But Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 6, let me read through that first of all. And we read here, uh, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets circumcised, gets himself circumcised, that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. So by way of outline today, we're going to consider, uh, first of all, uh, we need to be determined to stand firm in our freedom. Uh, Second of all, we need to uh, make sure we do not fall from the grace that's been bestowed upon us. And finally, the importance of demonstrating that faith through our love. So we trust God will bless the reading and teaching of his word to us today. As we begin, um, we, we find that Galatians 4 ended by, um, by telling us that, that we are children of the free woman. And, and so it goes and talks about the, uh, this analogy of, of uh, allegory of Sarah and Hagar and, and how we are, are children of the free woman. And so we need to live in light of that freedom. And, and so we need to understand we have freedom in Christ. And so we need to understand that, that freedom was secured for us by Christ. And how did that happen? Well, we've been talking about that this morning so far. It happened by his, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. I always love the old hymn that says, Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. Great theology in that, in that, that old hymn, which has been modernized as well uh, for us. But, but um, the question always comes up, first what must, be, what must we do to be saved? And the first thing you need to do to get saved is get lost. <laughs> Before you get saved, you've got to get lost, right? Uh, it's often been said that's the hardest part of evangelism, getting the people to see their need. Uh, because for the most part, people just think, well, I'm okay. I'm just kind of good enough. And you won't want freedom until you realize you're in bondage. And oftentimes it's like, you know, if you have a, a man standing in a kiddie pool with three inches of water in it, and you walk up to him with a life preserver and say, here, take this, I can save you. And he's going to look at you and go, save me from what? <laughs> you know? Now, I know technically a person can drown in three inches of water, but I don't, I don't need that, what you have to offer. Uh, I'm okay as I am. And, and I know that because I remember feeling that way myself, assuming that about myself. Uh, growing up, kind of being a, you know, being a kind of a church kid and, and being a good kid along the way, never got in any trouble or anything. And, and, and I, I eventually came to realize that I was a moral kid on his way to hell. I was a moral kid on his way to hell. And I want to make sure that you aren't relying on your morality today because morality doesn't cut it <laughs> because none of us can meet the standard that God has for us. And so we need to recognize that, that we, ha- we are drowning. <laughs> uh, we are drowning and we need to place uh, uh, our, our faith in Christ, repent of that sin. And once we do that, then we're set free. You know, we're set free from that. But how foolish it would be for us to, to run back into bondage to put ourselves under that again. And, and the, the Galatians were being challenged to do that, being threatened with, with the need to do that. Now, I came to understand the, well the connection between debt and bondage uh, many years ago um, when uh, we were expecting our, our third child. Uh, I was a pastor at uh, Morristown Bible Church up in southern New Jersey. And um, 
we, uh, the, the church came to us, some of the, the deacons um, came to us and said, you know, you're, you're getting ready for your third child. We're a little worried about your transportation. We were driving a, a Hyundai XL, okay? So that tells how long ago that was. They don't exist anymore. That was the one Hyundai product at the time. We were driving a Hyundai Excel, which was good for four, maybe five people. They were concerned about having a third kid to kind of squeeze into the back seat at that point in time. So they said, what can we do to help you? Um, and I, you know, I didn't know. I, I stopped and came back to them. I said, well, we know we need to get another car. How about you give us an interest-free loan? You know, that would be a big help, you know. So, uh, so they said, okay, we can do that. So they're going to loan us the money. We went and found a, found a nice uh, 92 Ford Aerostar. Again, that tells you how long ago this was. <laughs> uh, and and uh, we, we, we purchased that, and uh, the church had loaned us the money for it. And uh, a month later, the first month into it, I had a check, and I went to the treasurer and said, I want to pay, you know, and start paying back <laughs> the loan I got. And the treasurer said to me, no, you don't have to pay that back. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, the, the deacons got together and said, you don't have to pay this back. Uh, and he made this comment to me. He said, if you owe us money, then we own you. If you owe us, then we own you, you know. We, we're, we're, that debt's canceled completely. Like, and, and that helped me associate that idea of, yeah, you know, when you're in debt to somebody, you, you, know, you owe something to them. And, and you're, you lose a lot of freedom, you know, because you're going to have to make that happen. And so, um, so it's important for us when we think, again, moving from the, the, the very practical financial aspect that we're familiar with to the spiritual aspect of it, it, it it's the same way. You know, if we are thinking that we just have a righteousness that's on loan or that we're going to accomplish ourselves or that we owe the obedience of the law to God in some fashion, we're never going to have freedom. We're going to be under bondage. And so what does he tell us in verse 1? Stand firm in your freedom. Stand firm. Don't submit to that yoke of slavery again. Don't put yourself under bondage any longer. Again, that was the temptation that was coming at them. And we move into to, to verse 2 now we find that we really come to some of the strongest words that you'll ever find Paul say in Scripture. Um, he's really going to ultimately uh, get their attention here. And he says in verse 2, take note, right? Take note, uh, look, behold, mark my words. It's a way of getting their attention, saying you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. I'm bringing something very important to the table right now. So take note, I, Paul, reminder of who I am. That's why the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul's establishing his apostolic authority. These other people are coming in and bringing a different gospel, and he wants to establish, listen, who you're, who you're listening to. It's Paul. You know who I am. You know the calling I have from Christ firsthand to preach to you the true gospel of Jesus Christ, so you better listen up to what I have to say. And then if he finally really cuts to the chase um, and addresses the issue that was mainly in the, the thrust of the, the Judaizers, and that was of circumcision. And he calls them out, and he says in verses 2 through, uh, through 4, um, there are really three consequences of getting circumcised. He says, first of all, uh, if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Christ will be of no advantage to you, no profit, no value whatsoever. You lose the value, you lose any benefit you have from Christ. He goes on and says, again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised, he's obligated to do the entire law. It's not just one little thing. It's not just one thing that you have to do, and, 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 and that's fine. You've got to put yourself under the entire law, under entire obedience to everything going on out there, if that's the case. And finally, the third warning is, you who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You are severed, cut off, removed from Christ completely. 
pretty serious issue, isn't it? You know? Listen, if you do this, you're, you're giving up Christ if you go and get circumcised in obedience to this. And so, in, the, in that thoughtful of a thought of obedience. So, what's the big deal with circumcision? Okay? Why was that an issue that, that came up? Well, if you, if you turn back to Acts chapter 15, we find that as we work through the book of Acts, we, we know that at the, the beginning of Acts, as Jesus was departing and ascending into heaven, uh, he called upon the, the, his followers to be witnesses of his, of his to uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria under the uttermost part of the earth. And as, as the book of Acts is unfolding in that history, that's what's happening. Peter preaches the gospel in, in Jerusalem, and it spreads throughout Judea. We find Philip takes the, the message of the gospel to Samaria, where they were half Jews, uh, and, and Peter confirms that, that, that calling. And eventually Peter takes it to the Gentiles, with Cornelius, the first Gentile, being saved. And then Paul and Barnabas are set aside, and they're set out on a, a church-planting mission uh, to travel the, uh, through uh, what becomes pretty much Asia area. And, and they're preaching the gospel, and they see Jew and Gentile being saved and brought into one body in the church. And so we see all this is unfolding. And when you come to chapter 15 uh, and verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Right? So this gospel is going out to these Gentiles, and he says, well, no, then these people are coming and say, well, wait a minute. You know, you've got to get circumcised first. You can't be saved unless you come through Judaism. And that's why we call them the Judaizers. Okay, they're going to apply Jewish laws and Jewish responsibilities to all of that as it unfolds. And now why do they make a big deal of that? Why did, why did they feel that was so necessary? Well, they're tracing it back to the important call of Abraham and the covenant God made with Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 17. At that point is when God uh, makes his covenant with Abraham. He changes his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, which means a father of many nations. And in making that covenant, he, he gives him the, the, the sign of circumcision, which would be a sign from generation to generation to generation that God was fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham, that you're, you would have multiple generations to come. And so they look back and say, every Jew could say, am I a child of God? Am I a child? Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm circumcised. I'm under Abraham. That establish, establishes my relationship with God. That was the viewpoint that they had. It was a misconstrued viewpoint because later on they're told, you know, there's a lot more issues than that. It's really a matter of the heart, not a matter of the flesh. But that was their thought. And you can understand why if that's what you've been raised with, that's what you've understood all along, then obviously to have these people who are non-Jews, who you said were, were alienated from God completely, to say, well, they can't just get in right with God. They've got to come through Abraham. They've got to come through the law, through Moses, uh, where in Leviticus it says that uh, the establishes the responsibility of, of circumcision as well. So I look at it and say it's kind of understandable why they would think that, right? Um, but when something like that's going on, that's why you have the council in Acts 15. I'm not going to read it through. Uh, you can read that on your own if you haven't read it already this week. But um, in Acts chapter 15, they get together. They hear testimony from Peter and, and Paul. And they talk this whole matter through. And by the time it's over, they come to this conclusion. They're coming to the conclusion that you do not have to go through Judaism to be saved. You do not have to convert to Judaism first and then become a Christian second. You don't have to go that path. Uh, they do ask a few things that just for the sake of, of unity, there are certain things that they would like the, the Gentile believers to, to do to uh, you know, avoid food sacrifice to idol, things strangled, things with blood, sexual morality, 
uh, remember the poor, things like that, which all makes sense, you know, to, to, for the sake of unity. But none of that was to establish or get into a saved position. Uh, the, the council makes that determination that it was not necessary for Gentiles to come under the law to be saved, right? Well, like any other council, not everybody really agreed with that. That became the official position, but we find that, that there are other, others that come along even after this. And apparently, and obviously, in Galatia, uh, there were people that were coming and teaching that. Paul addresses the same thing in, in Philippians and Colossians as well. So it's not limited to this one church. In fact, it goes on through the next couple centuries, and even to today, some of this is happening. The Judaizers have never gone away completely. That's still around for the time being. And so, um, so the, the, the whole issue is... Um, you know, what's the problem, though, if you're going to go get circumcised now? What's the, what's the big deal about it? And it was really a matter of, if you do it as a means of salvation, as you do it as if you have to add that on to your faith in Christ, then you are removing yourself from really being under the, the umbrella of the grace of God. And now you put yourself under the law. And as a result, since by the law, no flesh can be justified, you're, you're losing all of that. And so he says at the end of verse 4, you have fallen from grace. Uh, what a, a challenging situation to, to, to address. And, and we do raise the question, well, is it, is it possible to fall from grace? <laughs> Can you really fall from grace genuinely for that? Uh, that has, of course, been a, a, an issue, that this topic of uh, the matter of eternal security, you know, once saved, always saved, uh, the, the, the perseverance or the preservation of the saints uh, is, is, is out there. And um, there are a lot of different views among Christians, you know, about that issue, about whether or not you can give up or lose your salvation along the way. And there's extremes, like any other issue there. There's extreme side of things where some people say, you know, if you have any unconfessed sin in your life, when you die, you go to hell. It doesn't matter what you've done. I had a, a gentleman who was in a church in southern New Jersey who once shared with me, listen, you could live a perfect life, live a holy life. This is the Philadelphia area. You could be living a holy life, and if you're in Philadelphia— and you're getting ready to cross the street, and you notice a girl in a short skirt, and you lust after her, step off the curb, get hit by a bus, you go straight to hell. Because you didn't get saved again. Uh, we were meeting with somebody one time and asked them, so tell us when you got saved. And she said, which time? Like, wait a minute. <laughs> okay, what do you mean which time, okay? <laughs> you're saved or you're not. It's not like a multiple thing. So that's one extreme, right? That's an extreme we don't run into too many people with that. The other extreme, or the, the other side, is the people that say, listen, you're four years old at vacation Bible school and you repeat the sinner's prayer, you're going to heaven no matter what. No matter what you believe the rest of your life, no matter what you do the rest of your life, you know, mom wrote that down in your Bible, you prayed that prayer that day, and you might do everything you want to forsake God and give up on God and everything, that doesn't matter. When death comes, God's taking you because you prayed that simple prayer and once you're saved, you're always saved. Well, that's the other extreme which doesn't, make, doesn't jive with Scripture at all. Uh, more moderated side of things, you've got those who feel like, well, you can be saved, but if you come to a point along the way where you have decided, listen, I no longer believe this. Um, um, I've, I've changed my mind about things. I'm, I'm going to deconstruct from Christianity. Uh, then I was saved, and now I've given it up. And if you choose to do that, then you can, you can, you can give it up, and you can lose it that way. Uh, on the other side, there are those who would say, um, a true believer will never come to that point. And if you find yourself coming to that point, that means you never really saved in the first place. Because how could anybody who really experienced the grace of God ever, ever walk away from it? 
And granted, you might be saved and might go through weak periods of time where you struggle and have some crisis of faith and maybe even wander away for a while. God's going to bring that, bring that all back. And, and the body of Christ does consist of people who have those different, different viewpoints on all that. You know, for me, I would, I would look at that situation and say, once you genuinely are saved, you're never going to really walk away. You can't walk away. As Jesus said in John 6, all the Father has given to me will come to me, and I will lose none of them in the last day. And he said, I give them eternal life, and they, no one ever takes them out of my hand. John 8, 38, 39 says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we're telling 1 John 2, 19 says, they went out from us. It's talking about Antichrist, the people rejecting Christ. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. And I was a teenager kind of searching for where I was going to fit in, in in life, and I ended up attending a, a Bible-preaching, gospel-preaching church for a short time. I really liked it. I kind of thought I fit in there, but then I wandered away from that. I left that for a while. Why? Because I really wasn't there. A year later, I was there. <laughs> that came around. And I would look back to that person and say, yeah, I didn't stick with them because I wasn't really of them. They thought I was, you know, but I wasn't really of them, but now I've come back, and that's would be, be my approach. So what does this idea of uh, of, of, of falling from grace mean about here. And it, it really means about, about uh, coming to that place where you have, have, have stumbled or removed yourself from being an umbrella where you're hearing and understanding the grace of God, that it's all by, by, by grace through faith and it's finished work. Um, and, and you're no longer adhering to that. And it's less about somebody who had it and lost it, but more about somebody who never really had it in the first place. Uh, there's a difference between a professor and a possessor, right? Uh, people can profess faith in Christ, but they may not really possess that faith in Christ. And so we want to make sure, am I, really, am I merely a professor because it fits my culture, because it's easy to get along with people, that's all I've ever known, or have I really come to possess and embrace Christ along the way? Be careful that we do not fall from that umbrella of grace and stumble away from that, but to make sure that we're truly under that area. Now, throughout all this study here in Galatians, I've been thinking about, well, where does this really apply today? You know, who, who are, the, who are the, uh, the Judaizers of our day? Uh, probably very few of us have ever had somebody come up and ask them the question, uh, so you're saved, are you? Have you been circumcised, you know? And uh, <laughs> our answer may vary, not because of a religious practice, but because of a <laughs> medical practice, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I am, but it had nothing to do with Christ. <laughs> you know, it had nothing to do with that. It was something else that was going on. Um, so, um, but, but are there others that are applying that in some sense? And, and it's been interesting to, to, to research that. In the 1600s, especially in, in England, uh, there were a lot of Judaizers that came along. John Trask was one, uh, and the Traskites followed him. He was one that was, uh, he was a dissenter from the Church of England. He was somewhat Puritan, but not completely embracing the Puritan ideas that were there. And uh, he began to teach that it was necessary to practice the Saturday Sabbath. And it was necessary for you to practice the dietary laws. They stopped eating pork. Uh, um, it was necessary for them to observe the festivals of the Old Testament. They were doing all that. And he was branded a heretic for that. Uh, ended up being tortured and <laughs> eventually recanted of that. And wrote a pamphlet um, that talked about how he was wrong ab about along the way. But not everybody recanted with him. Um, later on in the 16th century, there was another, uh, 17th century, 
uh, there was another group that was following out kind of in those footsteps. And they even specifically included circumcision as something you had to do to be saved. So that was happening as recently as, as, as that in, our, in, in history. But, um, you know, today we still see it. We see it today in the Hebrew Roots movement that's out there. You might get exposed to Torah Christianity, people saying, I, I, I never realized I was supposed to be observing the Torah as a Christian. Well, if you weren't taught that, it's probably because you weren't supposed to be, you know. It, 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 it's, it's, it, you can't go back and do those things, right? Christ, we're under a new covenant. That's been changed along the way. But aside from those that would make that kind of adherence, any system that requires something else in addition to faith in the finished work of Christ is, a, is, is effectively doing the same thing. It's saying that Christ's death is not sufficient for your salvation. Uh, within Christendom, there's parts of Christendom that teach this, uh, that, that uh, they, they call salvation by faith in Christ, but, but one group says the sacraments are the ordinary means through which Christ offers the grace necessary for salvation. You need Christ to be saved, but there are certain sacraments you need to participate in to obtain grace. But it makes no sense because anything you do to obtain grace makes it no longer grace, right? Because grace is unmerited favor. You can't get it. You can't work for it. You can't do something to achieve it. And that same group would go on to say that, that when you die, um, you're going to have an experience where you're, you're going to have to be purged for the, the rest of your sin because you're not completely cleansed. Christ is insufficient. He doesn't really cleanse us from all of our sin. That's the same problem. Another group says this. It says, to be cleansed from sin through the Savior's atonement, an individual must exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's good so far. Repent. All right, that's good. Be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. Well, baptism is, you know, but I, I can see why they would say that, okay? That sounds good so far. Then it goes on and says, those who have been baptized and have received the Holy Ghost through the proper priesthood authority have been conditionally saved from sin. In this sense, salvation is conditional. Depending on an individual's continuing faithfulness or enduring to the end in keeping the commandments of God. <laughs> it's only a conditional salvation Okay, God's got you at this point. Now you're on your own to take yourself all the rest of the way. One other one I'll mention uh, says that belief involves taking an accurate knowledge of God's purposes and his way of salvation. That sounds good. Uh, then faith has to be exercised in Jesus Christ as the chief agent of salvation. So far, so good. This places the Christian in a saved condition, but, <laughs> but he must now persevere in doing God's will and continue to adhere to all God's requirements for the rest of his life only then will he be saved to eternal life, right? You're not, you don't really have eternal life. You're saved, but you're not really saved. It's all based upon work. In every one of these cases, additional works are required in addition to faith. So we're not talking about people who are just denying and rejecting Christ. Oh, you don't need that. Everybody's going to heaven. It's all good. They're, they're talking about people who say, yeah, you have faith in Christ. I agree with that. But it's not sufficient. We need to recognize our sufficiency in Christ. And so we can sometimes fall in that same thinking, though, when we stop and think, well, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, I do this, this, and this. No. I mean, there is going to, we'll see in a second, there is going to be things that accompany salvation. But how do I know I'm saved? Because I have placed my faith completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for my sins. And I've repented, and I'm putting my trust in him, and that's how I know I'm saved. And I hope that's where you find yourself today. If not, you need to get yourself there. You need to be there in him. And so we see we're called to, to um, um, dedicate ourselves to standing firm in the, in the freedom we have in Christ. 
We're warned against falling from the grace that, uh, that God has by putting ourselves under a law or under a legal requirement. And then finally, we do get to the point where he starts to move into more of the ethical side of things about our need to demonstrate our faith through love. In verse 5, it says, For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. Notice verse 5, what a contrast it is to what the Judaizers are doing, right? He says, first of all, that we are waiting, right? We're waiting for that hope of righteousness. We're not working for it. We're waiting for it. It's not finished yet. Christ has done everything for us. Eventually, we'll be with the Lord and be completely in that righteous state, but we're waiting for it, and we're waiting for it how? We're waiting through the Spirit, not through the law, okay? Not through the, the, the law that was put on tablets of clay. We're doing it through the, through, through the Spirit, who has put God's law and God's word in our hearts, right? And it says, um, um, uh, it's through the Spirit, by faith, okay? Again, not by works, it's by our trust, our fully, full reliance upon him. And then he says, the crux of the real matter here is this, it's faith working through love. Circumcision, uncircumcision, that doesn't accomplish anything. What is important is faith accompanied by love. And so, the case is true. It doesn't mean that since we're not under the law, we are antinomian, which is a fancy word for not having any law at all to follow. It doesn't mean we have licentiousness, we have a license of sin and do whatever we want. You know, as a person, without getting into too much detail, who's the New Covenant theology, I would say, I often will say, you know, the Ten Commandments were given to national Israel, not given to everybody. We're not under the Ten Commandments today. That's part of the Old Testament law. And I say that, people say, oh, so you think it's okay to commit adultery and murder and do it? No, 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 no. <laughs> what I am saying is that the, those, those, the rest of that, all those other things that come, they come under a new covenant focus that's there, not trying to go back and claim the Ten Commandments. So uh, we can discuss further parts about that, but it doesn't mean that you're free from, from any kind of obedience or any kind of, of living in, in a way that, in a manner keeping with that. He's going to get into very heavily in the rest of the book you know, walking with the Spirit and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. <laughs> uh, that's going to be a necessity for us. We are going to have an ethical side to how we live that out. But how does that really get demonstrated? Well, it's got to be from faith working through love. And when I think of this, I always, I always think of a story uh, about a, a woman, a young lady who uh, uh, was betrothed to a, an older gentleman, kind of an arranged marriage situation. Um, no love that was in it. He was a bit of a harsh man. Um, and he gave her a list of expectations. This is what I expect from my wife, right? Uh, how I expect you to keep yourself, how I expect you to keep the house, when I expect dinner to be ready, all the rest of those rules and regulations. And she abided by them because she just felt like that was what she was supposed to do. And she had a miserable marriage. You know, she, she, just, she just hated it. And a um, little time went by, and the, the man died, right? So now she was free from that, and eventually she met another man, met a younger man, uh, she fell in love with him. <laughs> uh, and they soon were betrothed. They got married, and they were joined together. And, and uh, she was just, just, it was different from night and day. She just loved this relationship with this and, and how freeing it was, what a great relationship it was. And, and, and one day she was cleaning out some, some paperwork, and she came across the old list that her first husband gave her about his expectations. And before she crumbled it up and threw it away, she took a glance at it, and she went through that list and said, you know what? I'm doing everything that's on this list. <laughs> I, I, I am doing all this stuff for my, for my husband. But how come before it felt like a chore, and now it's part of my loving joy? Well, it's because that's, that's the difference that being in Christ, being in faith, being in love makes. And so we still have work to do. We still have things to practice. 
But we don't do it because I'm under a burden. I better do this or God's going to be angry at me and, and give me a hard time or, or cast me into hell. It's more like I am just so thankful for the relationship that I have with God and what he's done and what he's freed me from. And I can just live my life and, and walk in a manner that's, that's filled with his spirit, enjoying all that. That's the direction that we need to be going. And so we know that, that, that while works do not secure our salvation, works do not maintain our salvation, works will always accompany salvation. <laughs> there will be evidence. There will be signs of a changed life. But it all comes out of that motivation. We'll be motivated not out of fear and duty, but out of love and out of faith. And so we need to ask ourselves those questions. When it comes to the, the disciplines of the Christ, Christian life, you know, why do we commit ourselves to, to gather for worship? Uh, every Sunday, gather for teaching and fellowship and other settings. Why do we take time to read our Bible? Why do we take time to pray? Uh, why do we take time to give of our time and our treasures and our talents to, to serve our church and our community? Is it so that we will earn favor with God <laughs> so that he'll be happier with us and bless us? Uh, the fact is, you know, God's love for you isn't affected by those things, right? Um, if that is our motivation, then we're falling short, <laughs> We are Judaizing ourselves. We're making ourselves, our performance, the basis for our relationship with God. But instead, we should be motivated by faith, that confident assurance in God and what he's done for us, and by love, a self-sacrificing love that gives, expecting nothing in return because we already have everything we need. I was reading this week in, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 7, there's a story of Jesus being invited to the house of Simon the Pharisee. And um, he goes there for dinner. And during the dinner, uh, this woman with a bad reputation comes in. And uh, she comes to the feet of Jesus. She pours oil on his feet. She weeps. She washes them. She kisses his feet, washes it with her hair. And Simon, the Pharisee, is looking at Jesus and thinking, if this man was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and would not let her touch him, right? She's a bad lady. He shouldn't have her doing this for him. And he goes on and begins to tell a, a little brief parable. He says, um, you know, Simon, let me ask you this. What do you think of that? This um, uh, Suppose there was a man who owed, um, uh, owed $500 to somebody, and somebody else owed $5,000 to that person. And, um, uh, or 50000 actually, would really be more like. So someone owed five hundred, someone owed $50,000. Neither one could pay the debt, but the person came along and said, you know what, you're forgiven, don't worry about it. And he said, which one do you think would love the, <laughs> the other person better? The one forgiven the $500 debt or the one forgiven the $50,000 debt? He said, well, I suppose the one forgiven the bigger debt. And he goes on and he rebukes Simon. He said, listen, when I came into your house, you didn't give me a kiss on the cheek. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't wash my feet. Those are three things that were common and expected for hospitality at that time, right? You insulted me by not giving me these things. This woman, however, came in and she's done all of those things, you know. Why? Because, you know, she's experienced something that you haven't experienced. And what I love, what I really wanted to get to the, the point was the, the closing thing, that the closing item that Jesus says to the, to the woman. Uh, he's going to tell her to go in peace, right? Go in peace, go in freedom. That's what we're all looking for. But before he says that, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's not washing my feet that saved you. It was not pouring oil on my feet that saved you. It was not your tears that saved you. <laughs> it was your faith. Your faith is what saved you. Now go in peace. And ultimately for the Galatian church, they need to 
recognize it's their faith that saves them. Live in that peace. Don't go back and do any other, other, other stuff that's out there. I would title this message, you know, Staying Out of Spiritual Debt because Christ set us free for freedom. And it's free so that we would stay free. Stay firm, confident, expectant, hopeful in that freedom. And don't put inappropriate burdens on yourself at this point in time. I'm going to ask the, the band to come up. And as they're coming, um, the challenge I have for you is really examine your motives, right? You, you hear these messages, and, you know, again, you don't have people telling you to do this stuff necessarily, but it really comes back to, to a matter of, of what are our motives for doing the things that we do that we know are important as Christians? Do you have to read your Bible every day, or do you get to read your Bible every day? <laughs> do you have to come to church on Sunday, or do you get to come to church on Sunday? Do you have to go to life group, or do you get to go to life group? Notice there's a big difference through all of those things, right? It's not that we have to do it because if I don't do the right thing, God's going to be mad at me, and he might not let me into heaven, or he might punish me for this. It's not about that. <laughs> it's about the fact that I have a relationship with God, and I get to live in, that li- in light of that. And we need to replace those feelings or those fears with faith that's working through love. And most importantly is, have you had your debt removed in the first place? <laughs> if you're here today, and you're not sure whether or not you have everlasting life, if you're here today and you think you're relying more on your works than anything else, maybe you see yourself today as a moral person on your way to hell because you've never embraced Christ as Savior. Don't leave today without talking to somebody around you. <laughs> you know, I'm available, Mark's available, any, almost anybody else in here that uh, might be, would be able to share that truth with you. So that's what's most important. If, you're not, if you don't know the Lord today, put your trust in him today. If you do know him, make sure your faith is in the right direction. <laughs> Uh, that you're not relying on any of your works, but relying on the finished work of Christ alone. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to to be together in this house and to worship you and to um, celebrate your word. We celebrated the Lord's table as a reminder of the, the, the finished work that Jesus Christ did on the cross and as a reminder that he is coming again. And we look into your word and we're reminded today, Lord, that uh, that your grace is sufficient, that the work of Christ is sufficient. Jesus paid it all, and we thank you for that. And I pray again, Lord, for anybody that's here that's maybe wrestling with that, doesn't feel free um, because they, they, they maybe genuinely have trusted Christ, but there's something hanging over their heads, that you would help them to, to experience the joy and freedom that comes in Christ today. And again, should there be any here who need to come to that place through repentance and faith that they call upon you, Give that person no peace or rest until they settle that issue with you today, this very hour. Thank you, Lord, for being with us today. Thank you, Lord, for touching us and changing us. In Jesus' name, amen.